Hello, my name is Jeremy Davis. I am a, uh, I guess I would call myself a storyteller. And the story that I want to share with you is a story that I've told many times in the jail and at uh, a treatment center where I go and get to share, as well as perhaps a couple of other places. I told it this week in preparation for Good Friday, and I realized that it has a special connection with the events that will tra transpire this Easter weekend. And so I decided to share this story in a format that you can watch without having to go to jail. So I hope that you've found just a little time to, to watch this, and I just pray that in this story you'll hear something that gives you a confidence in our Heavenly Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that the words that you wish to share and the ideas that you wish to reach out and connect with your people will not be hidden in the words that I use. And any of the ideas that are mine, I pray that will, they will be quickly forgotten so that your truth will shine through. Amen. I believe in a transcendent God. A transcendent God is not a God who lives within the creation, but is a God who is outside of it. And necessarily, a God who is outside of our creation would not need our creation. God was complete in himself. He was total, sufficient not lacking anything, not struggling to exist without his creation. As a matter of fact, most of the attributes of God function completely within him being alone. We talk about God being omnipotent. It's another word for having all power. God can have all power and be God. He doesn't need any audience to be all-powerful. He might like it. But it doesn't have a compelling interest in having someone there. God is all-knowing. Well, I will tell you this. The word we use is omniscient. And his omniscience is much more difficult if he does have a creation. He could be all-knowing, complete within himself. And it would be a lot more convenient than adding in creatures like us. God is omnipresent. That means he is everywhere at the same time. And again, God can be omnipresent if he is alone in the universe as much as he could be in on any other condition. Those attributes of God do not call God away from his self-sufficiency. But God is love. And God's love is what compelled him to reach out he needed something for his love to be a part of who he was. There needed to be an object which, upon which, to which he could show his love and his love could be reflected back to him. God wanted what I will call a love relationship. It wasn't enough that God had something to love, but God wanted a dynamic love. A love that would shine out and reflect back. And it was that attribute of God 
which prompted him to create. That truth in and of itself is so profound. And I think one of the reasons you know how profound it is, is that that is the first attack of Satan. Satan understands that if he can get us to associate something with God other than love, that he has begun to undermine the relationship between God and us at its very core level. Now, I'm not saying that the other attributes of God are less important. I am simply saying that Satan would love to have your first thought about God to be something other than love. But I am convinced that without love, God had no reason to create. He did not inherit the world. He created it. And so God, prompted by a desire for a love relationship, began to create. The first thing he created was what I would call the elemental universe. It is that part of our universe that consists of what we call the elements. The static material of the universe. It says this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void. That is what we're talking about. The elements. Hydrogen, oxygen, carbon, gold, iron, copper. Whatever you can name is some collection of elements together. And the elements are absolutely amazing. They're made of three basic components. They're made of a proton, a neutron, an electron. And the thing that's fascinating about those three components is that when you combine them, something amazing happens. Or imagine that I'm down, I can make a few things in the kitchen. One of the things I can make is pancakes. So imagine I'm down in the kitchen making pancakes. I mix up a batch of pancakes and my wife comes in. And she says, what are you making? I said, pancakes. She said, oh. She said, looks like you got a lot there. And I said, yeah. I decided that we were so hungry, I was going to make four batches. And she's pretty confident that if I mix up four batches, as long as I follow the recipe, I'll get a lot of pancakes. Same thing in a different amount. But what is amazing about the elements is that when you mix multiple batches of these three components, you get totally different elements. You mix one electron, one proton, one neutron, and you get helium. I'm sorry, hydrogen. You mix two batches, you get helium. And on down, we have something maybe familiar with this, the periodic table. You may have paid attention to it in science, you may not. But in it, it tells us how many batches of electrons, protons, and neutrons we need to make a totally different variety of elements. Now you could say, well, hydrogen, yeah, and helium, they aren't that different. Well, I beg to differ. Hydrogen is so burnable. Flashes off easy. Helium won't burn. It is totally stable. But I agree that they're both light and visible gases. But if we happened to mix up, let's say we mixed up 79 batches, 
So I'm in the kitchen, and I mix up 79 batches of pancakes, and Mary says, oh, you're going to get pizza. It doesn't work that way. But if you mix up 79 batches of electrons, protons, and neutrons, you get gold. Quite a bit different than one batch. Now, I think that is cool. And I think that if I had invented a system that was so complex and yet so simple, I'd be pretty proud of it. I might even love it. I think I'd always be talking about it. Hey, see that? I, I did that. I made that. Isn't that cool? So I could believe that God loves the elemental universe. But the elemental universe, even though it has incredible variety, the elemental universe could not reflect love back to God. God could not have a love relationship with a cloud of hydrogen or a chunk of iron. So God continued to create because he longed for a love relationship. The next level of his creation was the plant kingdom. And it is absolutely amazing. He gave the plant kingdom something that is incredibly profound. He gave the plant kingdom the ability to reproduce. And the ability to reproduce is so fundamental that it is in every single cell of every single plant. We're standing in a house that I made. And actually, before I made it, I didn't have professional blueprints made, but I had drawn up my own blueprint. I had drawn up plans. I had figured out certain key measurements so that I could keep the house looking good. And maybe, I don't know, a lot of stuff piled up since then, but maybe we could go and find that blueprint. But if this was a plant, you know what we do? We could go to any piece. This, this screw right here, we could take it off and... Part of that screw would be the blueprint. We could take off this piece of wood, and part of that piece of wood would be the blueprint. God put the blueprint for every part of every plant in every single cell. Wow. And when he did that, he not only made a mechanism for plants to reproduce, but he made a mechanism of a certain level of independence. The plants, if left alone, will reproduce. That gives them an independence that iron or gold doesn't have. Gold doesn't reproduce. It doesn't make more of itself. But plants do. So God gave it a little bit of independence. And plants are incredible. And plants can be, I don't know, company, I suppose. That's why people have plants in their house. It, it brings some life. But I'll tell you something. You can hug a tree. But it won't hug you back. If you're picking something for a love relationship, don't pick a plant. You can lavish all the love on it that you want, and it will merely go about the business of reproducing. So God, who had this incredible elemental universe, and added the complexity and independence that belongs to plants, continued to create. 
And the next level of complexity that he created was the animal kingdom. The animal kingdom is a whole new level. And in the animal kingdom, we start to find the first prototypes of love. As a matter of fact, God is willing to be compared to some of his animals. Uh, specifically, he's willing to be compared to chickens, which always puzzles me a little bit, because we've had chickens. And I'm not sure that I would pick the chicken to compare myself to, but God said, I long to gather you like a mother hen. So we begin to have this picture of love. Animals have an independence that isn't just their ability to create copies of themselves, but they have an independence that allows them to move. They can choose to go somewhere else. The fly buzzing around the window somehow decided it wanted to go there. It didn't have to. I don't know what made it decide to, but something gave it a freedom, an independence, an ability to run away. So in animals, we begin to see two key points of love. Love has the ability to accept and receive, but also the ability to reject. But animals, as profound as they are, as an incredible company that they can make for you, animals are guided by two fundamental principles. The first is instinct. And instinct comes from a, 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 an instruction that God hardwired into that animal. Up in this part of the country right now, we have a lot of people who have cows who are giving birth. And I have gotten to be part of some of that. And, and this calf comes out. It hasn't experienced anything of life. And it may have had sort of a traumatic experience during birth. And the first thing it does is its head comes up. And it starts wa waving its head around with the vacuum cleaner turned on. <laughs> They want something. And when the mother steps over, the calf gets what it wants. It's like, wow, that's an incredible. Nobody taught the calf to do that. The mother doesn't have to encourage the calf. The calf does it because of instinct. Well, some people say, yeah, so what, Jeremy? You're calling it instinct, but it's just something that happened through evolution. Right? Because all the calves who didn't do that died. So the one calf that for some obscure reason happened to want to suck, it survived. And so it's just a matter of that mutation breeding through the species. And I'm like, well, I don't think so. But when you consider instinct, there are some things that you cannot answer that way. Have you ever seen pictures of the monarch butterflies that gather in Central America? There'll be a grove of trees, the same grove, that every so often will just get totally inundated by monarch butterflies. And then they'll leave, they'll conduct an a, a elaborate migration long term, and then they will return to the same trees. But here's what's amazing. It is not the same butterflies who return to the same trees. It is generations subsequent to those butterflies. It would be as if I said, all right, come with me. We're going to go to your great, 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 great grandparents' place of birth. I don't know if any of us could find that. Maybe a few. 
who have done a lot of searching, but even that would be amazing. And yet this is encoded in the monarch butterfly. God put in instinct in the animal. And it is important that you not underestimate the ability of instinct. Animals act according to their instinct and we do not fault them for doing so. That's key. Talked about the farms. One farm I visit often, he has a pen of bulls. And he knows that those bulls want one thing to get with the cows. And he doesn't go out and lecture them. He doesn't threaten them with punishment. He doesn't try to coerce or manipulate them. He builds big fences because he doesn't fault the bulls for wanting to do that. Instinct has two powers. It absolves us of guilt and it programs us to the proper behavior. So if God had been satisfied with the love relationship that he could have in an animal, then he could have given us that kind of instinct. A kind of instinct that we would act out, and in it we would not be guilty, and in it we would not make bad choices. Because we didn't have an instinctive desire to. Well, that's where the second part comes in, and that's conditioning. Because there's some people who claim that, that we're just an animal and we are acting out our instincts. But there's a second powerful tool, and that is called conditioning. A man named Pavlov made up an experiment. He was watching dogs, and he noticed that physiologically, dogs, when they expect to be fed, begin to secrete more saliva. That saliva helps them eat their food, chew their food, and digest it. So every time he gave them food, he would ring a bell. Food and a bell, food and a bell, food and a bell. And then one day, he didn't give them food and he rang the bell. And he measured the same increase of saliva that they would have had had they smelled or seen their food. So you can have a conditioned behavior that opposes, that opposes your instinct. Now, those who claim that we are nothing more than, the, than our instincts, acting out free from guilt because that is our instinct, they believe that all the things that they don't like are a result of conditioning. And so they excuse it, or they blame. But whether it's instinct or conditioning, this is the problem that emerges. The love relationship that you have with a creature that is ruled by instinct and conditioning is only as good as the instinct you placed in them and the conditioning you gave them. In other words, you cannot have a love relationship with an animal. You may love the animal, and the animal may be conditioned to affirm that love, but there is not a relationship of parody. So God took his first big risk. And he said, I will make a creature in my own image. And this creature, created in my own image, will have the ability to enter into a full love relationship with me. this creature will also have the right to reject me. 
what a risk. Why would God take such a profound risk? Or I told you the answer. It is because he was longing for a love relationship. He was not looking for a scapegoat. He was not looking for pawns to move about on a board. He longed <coughs> for a love relationship. So he created two creatures. I believe there really were an Adam and an Eve. And he took these creatures because he loved them, because he wanted to lavish upon them the love that he had stored up for infinite, infinity past. He put them in a beautiful garden. It was called the Garden of Eden, or otherwise called Paradise. It was a place where the trees were beautiful to look at and full of fruit. The, an, the, the, the animals existed in peace. And Adam and Eve could walk through the garden. But even though they were a creature that had the ability to enter into a love relationship and had the choice to reject God, there still was a problem. And let me tell you what that problem was. Well, let me give you an illustration. Imagine, I, I'm very proud of my children. And imagine that I am bragging about my children. Forgivable, I suppose, for a parent. I'm telling you how my kids are so obedient. They just rush to obey. Whatever I tell them to do, they just, boom, they're on it. They're doing it. And you might be like, well, you know, I know kids. Maybe it's not always like that. So you want a little bit of evidence. So I share. Hey, just check out last night. Last night, I brought home a bucket of ice cream, and I said to those kids, you eat that ice cream. And like that, they ate it. And all of a sudden you're saying, wait a minute, Jeremy. Maybe they're not obedient. Maybe they're greedy. Well, the same problem existed for God. He created this man and woman and put them into a perfect environment. But he was longing for a love relationship. And so unless there was some reason for them to choose to reject him. Unless there was some challenge placed in front of them, then God could not know their love. So God took the second big risk. And right in the middle of the garden, he placed a tree. And he said, Of the fruit of this tree you shall not eat. And I'm thinking, God, that is so dumb. Okay, you don't put it in the middle of the garden, right? You put it hidden away somewhere. Put it in the farthest corner where they won't find it. It'd be like if you invited me over. I got four grandkids, four grandsons, four energetic grandsons. Okay, so if you invited me and my family over, there's a lot of us just plain going to be in your house. But with four energetic grandsons, if I came over to your house and sitting out on your coffee table was an exquisite glass vase. When that vase got bumped, there would be a little part of me saying, well, duh. Don't think that was really the place to do it. You should have put that off away in a corner. And that's how I felt about God. What are you doing, God? What are you doing sticking right in the middle of the garden, this tree? And Satan was there to start whispering in my ear. Yeah. Yeah, that's the kind of God he is. 
He's not a God of love. He's a God waiting to trip you up. He's going to set his problems right in front of you and then watch you fall because that's why he made you. And if you're struggling with sin, wow, that lie will sound so real to you. Because you don't find yourself being lured into the right behavior. But boy, Satan will make sure there are people luring you into the wrong behavior. And it starts to sound so real that there is this God who sort of wants to trip you up. This God who is angry at you from the beginning and is just looking for an excuse. So he put that tree right in the middle of the garden where sooner or later you would fall. But I do not believe that. I believe in a God who from the beginning of time was longing for a love relationship with you. And he placed that tree in the very middle of the garden. Because he wanted every day for Adam and Eve to walk by it and say, I don't get this whole knowledge of good and evil thing, but I trust God. The connection between love and trust is strong. But that is the foundation of the love that God wanted to see. That Adam and Eve would have said, you know what? Even if it's just God's little... That's his deal. I love him enough not to eat. But we know that Adam and Eve fell. They decided to eat of the fruit of that tree. And there's part of me that would get angry at God for that. Now, we don't know what the fruit was. We know it was pleasing to look at. And we suspect it tasted good. And so I have this idea, God, why didn't you have lima beans be the knowledge of good and evil? Because they aren't pleasant to look at and they don't taste real good. I think Adam and Eve could have resisted if they were lima beans, right? I don't think so. And here's why. In that moment when Adam and Eve chose to eat of the tree, there was something much deeper going on. It wasn't God saying, I'm going to set something. Not only am I going to put it in the middle of the garden, I'm going to make it so, so desirable that you can't resist. What was going on was something much, much deeper. See, there's something in God that exists as a unity that in us exists as a duality. So let me give another example. Maybe it's a dated example, but, but imagine that I told you I think that I'm probably the best golfer in my whole county. Well, those of you who know I'm from Clearwater County, Minnesota, would say, yeah, that wouldn't be too hard. I guess I believe that. If Jeremy says it, got no reason to doubt it. There's not that many golfers. It's a small county. So, okay, I'll buy that. I'll believe that. Then if I went on to brag a little more and say, you know what, I think I'm the best golfer in the state. Now it's getting a little harder for you to believe me. Because the state of Minnesota has some good golfers. But it's conceivable that maybe I was an excellent golfer and turned my back on a life of golf to follow what God has called me to do. So, so nah, we're, we're getting some people who are really still willing to believe me. And some are saying, no, no, that's, that's very doubtful. 
fact is, I don't play golf at all. But if I went on further and said, you know what, I think that I am probably the best golfer in the world, you're going to say, ah, I know that you're full of it. But if I brought in somebody, he drove up my driveway in his new Buick and took off his Nike hat when he came in and stood beside me, and his name was Tiger, and he said, you know, I think I might be the best golfer in the world. Well, there's some argument, and people move on and, and retire, but arguably you could say, yeah. Yeah, you, you, you've, done, you've done some things to prove it. For him, it wouldn't be boasting. For me, it would be. Now, that's just a poor picture, but here's what's going on in my life. I have a God who gave to me his very nature. And God can say, boy, am I great. When he says, boy, am I great, he is God. So he is saying two things. He's saying, I am great, and he is saying, God is great. But for him, that's one. But for me, and you, and everyone who has lived since Adam and Eve, that is two things. There is part of me that longs to say, God, you are truly great. And there's part of me that longs to say, boy, am I great. It should be my way. I should be the one who decides what happens. And the temptation that Adam and Eve faced that moment in the garden wasn't a temptation of an apple or a peach or a lima bean that they couldn't resist. It was a temptation of them having to choose whether they were going to say, Your will, God, or to say, My will. And that was a struggle from which God could not exempt them. That's what's so profound. Had it been lima beans, it would have been the same struggle. Not a struggle of what that temptation was, but a struggle of what that temptation meant. God could not give us His nature, His image, without us facing this dilemma. It's in you. A struggle to say, God, you are God. Let me worship you. I am nothing and you are great. And uh, a part of you that says, no, it's my will that matters. It's my way. I should have been God. Boy, am I great. And so Adam and Eve chose in that moment to say, my will be done. And God came and walked with them in the garden and called out to them and their shame was uncovered and their guilt was exposed. And in that moment, God would have been righteous in punishing them because they had rejected the greatest gift He had given. And what's even more fearsome? God would have been justified in allowing Adam and Eve to go on living just so he could exact revenge on every 
subsequent generation. And boy, Satan would love to have you believe that. It's just a version of what I said before. God setting the tree in the middle so he could get you, so he could trip you up, had a few extra lightning bolts he could throw at you, and now it's just a version of that, that God is so angry and so put out at Adam and Eve that anything he can get you with, any problem he can send into your life, he, he feels completely justified. And he would be. But that is not how God reacted. Instead, God in that moment promised us the only thing he had withheld. His son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came for two reasons. One of the reasons that he came was to give his life, to die in our place and pay the penalty for our rebellion. Suffer the consequences for each of us saying, my will be done. But Jesus came for another reason. He came more or less, to prove it could be done. Now, I used to get frustrated with that. It says in Hebrews that he was tempted in every way such as I am. And I think that's ridiculous. That's manifestly not true. The Internet has a lot of temptations on there. Whether it's the images you're, you're watching or the time you spend... There is a huge temptation associated with the internet, and Jesus never had to suffer that, so obviously the book of Hebrews is incomplete. Jesus was not tempted in every way such as we are, but I will tell you, I believe he was. Because the temptation that we face is never a temptation for the activity so much as it is a temptation to say, my will be done. It's a temptation for us to exert our godhood. Only there's one real simple solution God has anytime I try this. Anytime I start slipping over and saying, my will be done, I think I should be God, God says, oh, here, I'll give you a little chance to try it out. And it takes that long for me to find out that I can't do it. The fix is in. I can't be God. Even if he gives me the opportunity, I can't do it. I have the desire, but I have not the ability. And here is where Jesus Christ was tempted, just like we are, only he was tempted far more powerfully. Because he was God. Right? Every time I'm tempted to act like God, I am tempted even while I know I can't do it. It's like being tempted to steal a bike that I can't ride. But Jesus was tempted to exert his Godhood while being God. And it was a very real temptation. On that good Friday evening, 
He was in the garden in agony, struggling with this very thing, until finally he said, Not my will, but yours be done. That was that prototype of the love relationship that God has been longing for. For a creature to reach out to God and say, Not my will, but yours be done. And it was Jesus who had every right to claim his godhood and along with it the ability to live out his godhood who showed us the way. What do we call it? It's called surrender. And Satan hates it. Satan hates your surrender. He wants to find a whole list of reasons why it's not practical for you to surrender. He wants to find a whole list of reasons why it's not even your fault that you should need to. He wants to convince you that you're just living out your instincts, that it's not fair, that you're tempted in this way and others aren't, that it is not your fault. And he does a pretty good job. And Satan loves to take that along with his effort to hide from you God's love. Make God's whole creation about some scheme to punish you. When in fact, it was the realization of God's longing for a love relationship. And so tonight, I want to invite you into that love relationship. That love relationship that recognizes that in you has been a struggle. Maybe your whole life. But in you that struggle. It was not a struggle you could escape. It manifests itself different for each one of us. But we could not escape because God loved us and wanted a love relationship. So he gave to us a nature that is torn. And there's that one part of you that says, God, I want that love relationship with you. Not my will, but yours be done. And there's that part of you that says, my will. And I invite you tonight, like Jesus did, to lay that down. Not my will, but yours be done. And Satan whispers and says, no, that's subservience. That's oppression. That's a God who wants to grind you down and get his own way and get you to surrender to him because he wants to conquer you. And I say, no, that is a lie from the pit of hell. That God, from the very beginning, wanted a love relationship with you. To have that love relationship, He had to give you His very image. 
And now he asks you to surrender. To say, not my will, but yours be done.